Let's um, bow our heads as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we have just sung a beautiful prayer with so many truths about your word. And we pray that you would grant every one of those requests to us as we come to your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is the final part of our series on 2 Corinthians 3. We'll be in verse 18. Please could you turn there now. But before we actually read the passage, I want to ask you a question. How many pairs of shoes have you worn out in your life? Now ladies, I said worn out. (laughs) I'd wager it's more than a few. It's such a shame that things wear out for so many reasons. They might be expensive, they might be hard or even impossible to replace. They might be things we really like. But why do things wear out in the first place? I mean, if you think about atoms, they don't seem to have that problem, but when you assemble them into something useful, it's a completely different story. Now, I'm not clever enough to explain to you about atoms, but I can tell you that there is a specific word that describes this process of things wearing out, and that word is entropy. It turns out that entropy is pretty difficult to explain. A simple definition is that it is a measure of the amount of energy that is unavailable to do work, and so it is a measure of uncertainty or randomness. More entropy means more randomness, and you cannot change that unless you do work. Now, we all know about work. We work in our gardens, we work on our houses, we work in our hobbies, and we make beautiful things, but... When we stop working on them, they always begin to deteriorate. And that's a very practical demonstration of entropy. The trouble is that the amount of deterioration is always bigger than the amount of work anybody can do, and so everything in the universe inevitably slips into a higher state of entropy, or you might say disorder or worn-outness. So it's inevitable then. Everything runs down and gets worse and worse and worse. No. I'm extremely happy to state that this isn't actually true. But that's only so for one thing in all of creation, and that is the spiritual state of every single one of God's children. And that's what we'll see today. So let's read our text now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And as usual, I'm going to start reading a little earlier in verse 12, just to try and keep the sense of the whole thing. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, 
just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I want to just pop up the NLT version of that verse because it reads a lot more clearly. I just want you to look at that for a moment. Just see what's written there. The first part says that we are a privileged, privileged people who are unveiled. And we have a job to do, to reflect to the world the glory of the Lord so that more people may turn to Him. The second part of the verse contains a wonderful promise. If you think that entropy is wearing you down in your spiritual life too, it hasn't at all, and it never will. Not one bit. In fact, this verse demonstrates the one and only real case of neg entropy, which is the word that describes things that are coming, becoming more orderly. It is the direct opposite of entropy. You are becoming more and more negentropic. That's a good word, isn't it? You can use that when you go outside. You're becoming more and more orderly as the Holy Spirit works within you to make you more and more like the Lord. Yes, you, all of you. Now, I don't know about you, but I was so uncomfortable during Colfane's sermon last week. And I fully understood why he could have felt depressed during his sermon prep, because the text that he had contained such confrontational verses, which remind us so powerfully of our failings. And trust me, that confrontation is way more powerful when you are dwelling really, really deeply on a passage like you do in sermon preparation. Such feelings can cause us to believe that we have made such a mess of our Christian walk that the best thing to do is just to give up and go home immediately. That's why it's so important at times like that to have verses like today's ready to hand because they remind us that although we have done, and will fail. It isn't actually about us, it's about Jesus. Thanks to him and his amazing sacrifice on the cross, these failings are not further catastrophic blows against any hope of seeing heaven, but they actually become part of a learning and shaping process that's directed by the Holy Spirit who lives within us, and that process goes on and on continuously, and, here's my word again, negantropically for as long as we live. I just want to pop in a short public health warning here, though. Although it is so that we can learn from bad experiences, God does not ever make us do evil things or do evil things to us for the purpose of that learning and shaping. Secondly, for our part, we must not ever deliberately seek out and do evil things with the excuse that we're doing them so that we can learn. That's just excusing plain, willful sin. No, it's mostly the consequence of our own fleshly decisions, which are then topped up by living in a fallen world that causes us to have evil experiences. It's true that God has the power and wisdom to use such things for our good and His glory, but we must clearly understand that His personal separations from all things evil is clear and profound. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none, none at all. 
That means nothing at all. He simply cannot and will not associate with anything evil at all. He cannot do anything evil. He cannot tolerate evil. And those attributes are things that we should by all means learn to emulate. I think it's time to have a closer look at the passage now. In our last sermon on this, this text, we spent some time looking at the word therefore and how it required that we play, pay close attention to what became before that verse for the proper understanding of what was in the verse. And this time we're going to look quickly at the word but. We all with unveiled face as this text begins. Whenever we see this word but, we can be sure that there is going to be a radical change of condition for something or someone. In this case, it's the leap from the old covenant to the new for every believer in Christ. On one hand, blindness and a veil, but on the other hand, perfect sight and freedom. But isn't a word that describes a fractional or incremental change. It is a radical change. It is a radical change we must take to heart because this little three-letter word is a doorway to a very different understanding of our life. Once we were lost, but now we are found. Once we were enemies with God, but now we are His family. Once we were blind, but now we can see. Once we were alone, but now we have the Holy Spirit. But, it's little, but it's so powerful. What follows? But we all, we, is clearly referring to Corinthian believers and thus by extension to all believers who follow right up today. And those who have repented of sins and bowed to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now that means that if you're listening to this and haven't done those things, then none of what I'm saying to you today is true. You are stuck with entropy, invariably getting a bit more worn out every day. But it doesn't have to be that way. The church isn't some kind of elitist club. In fact, it's quite the opposite, because all Christians are failures too. Because all Christians are human, all humans are sinners. And sin, my friends is what causes our relationship with our Creator and God to break down completely. Remember what I said earlier about God's profound holiness. Okay, you might say, so I'll just stop sinning then. Just go cold turkey. Don't need the church and the singing and the sermons and all that stuff. Well, I'd like to say to you, good luck with that. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all means all. Everyone without exception. And we all carry on doing it again and again. No human except Jesus alone ever managed to live a sinless life. And so absolutely no one is going to make it up that particular mountain to God because even one sin is enough to keep us permanently at the bottom. Now that, that, that doesn't mean that the relationship is just left in some kind of stalemate with us milling around at the bottom of the mountain and God at the top doing something more interesting. No, it makes us God's enemies. And for him, enemies must be actively fought and punished 
And when you are almighty God, creator of all things everywhere, well, nobody stands any chance against that. Without Jesus, you do not have any chance. God will punish you. However, with Jesus, chance is irrelevant. Chance doesn't come into the picture at all because what he brings when you take him as Lord is complete certainty. Certainty that your sins are completely forgotten and forgiven. That God now treats you as his child with all the privileges of belonging to his family. Certainty that when you die you will go to heaven. And finally, certainty that one day when God has brought all the things in this world to an end, you will live in a new world with him, with no more pain or suffering or tears. Perhaps you think I'm crazy. That as everybody out there says, this is just a fairy story. Well, maybe I am crazy. But I know that this isn't a fairy story. And to steal a line from Billy Joel... I may just be the lunatic that you're looking for. So, why wait? Entropy might be relentless, but you can act to reverse it now. Back to the text. So far we've established there is a change in condition coming because we have seen the word but. It affects Christians and it affects all Christians without exception. You and me and a dog named Boo. Or maybe not the dog. So, what is the change then? It is the unveiled face. Now the Greek word from which the word unveiled is translating is illuminating. Firstly, its tense tells us that it is a past and it is a completed action. It doesn't ever need to be done again. And although it's only used in one other place in the New Testament... It is used 19 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Here's a few of them. And the underlined bits that you'll see up there are where the word has been used. Job 12.22 He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. Psalm 18.15 Then the channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Isaiah 22:14. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Daniel 2:22. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take in the future. And he reveals mysteries, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Now if you have a look at these, you'll see that the word is used in these verses always gives us the sense that this unveiling is not some run-of-the-mill of event. For example, drawing the curtains back in the morning first thing and seeing, ah, oh, there's the same brick wall I've seen for 20 years. No, it's always something a lot more profound. There's something special to be anticipated with meaningful consequences for the beholder. So let's look at some more Greek then. 
What we read here about the face being unveiled, it doesn't just mean the physical face. Oh, look, there's an eyeball and a nostril. And wait for it, wait for it, there's a mouth. No, it means the real person, the whole person, their character and their mood. There's no pretense, no playing a part that is all dealt with by the unveiling that strips all these things away. And of course, when Paul speaks here of an unveiling, he also wants the reader to naturally think of the veil uh, that was split in two in the temple at the moment of Jesus' death. Now, the significance of that was that there was no further need for God to be hidden from humans, no barrier between him and us. The way was now free and open through Jesus for God and man to speak and interact as the Lord had intended from the very beginning. And this is the profound revealing that Paul meant the reader to understand. Man could freely see God and God could freely see man. But the way is also open for man and man to speak in the way that the Lord had intended. What do I mean by that? Well, in this verse, there is both a promise and a product. The promise is that through Jesus, God is unveiled. He becomes available to us despite our continual sin. But there is also a product. That product is Jesus. And we as Christians are the one who are required to do the selling. Well, how do we do that? Well, through the same unveiled face, because an unveiled face can both see and be seen. And this is completely consistent with the overall message of this chapter's the earlier part of this chapter. It can't be disconnected from what we've seen before. Look back to verse 12 at the beginning of the section. It says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. So let's connect that to what we have learned today. Let's ask, why do we have great hope? We have great hope because the truth has been unveiled to us. We can now see it clearly and reap its benefits. Yay, I'm all good now. I can see. Well, you truly are all good now, but that hope wasn't only intended for yourself. And that's why we're expected to speak it out boldly wherever we go. How do we speak boldly? Well, obviously with our mouths, yes. But that's only part of the whole discourse, which includes our character, our actions, our morals, and our attitudes. These things together are our face to the world. And if these things are unveiled, open to those around us, and if they are, as they ought to be, of a godly nature, then they will speak powerfully to others of the need to follow Christ. Do you see how those things all hook together? So let's add to this a slightly confusing bit that comes next. Next, it's, it's kind of hard to understand this next bit of the text. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now it turns out that the Greek word translated here as beholding in a mirror is a translator's headache because it can have two completely different meanings. One to behold God's glory and the other to reflect God's glory, complete opposites. And depending on the Bible you use, you might have either of those in your text. So which one is right? Looking 
we're seeing? I don't know. The fact of the matter is I can't help you to resolve the translation. If eminent Greek scholars can't agree on the matter, well, there's, there's no chance I can do that. But pondering it, it does seem to me that in a marvelous way, both might be simultaneously be right, and maybe even this is what Paul had cleverly intended. It, come back, it comes back to context as it always should. The reader has been just reminded about how Moses' face shone so brightly after returning from an encounter with the Lord that he had to cover it up so that he didn't freak out his fellow Israelites. Well, why did Moses' face shine? It wasn't because he'd misapplied his brill cream that morning. It was only because he had come face to face with the glory of the Lord. Us humans have no real glory of our own to offer the world. The only time that we have something of worth that will endure is when it is reflected from God. And that is how it is for Christians in the work that we have to do for the Lord. The good news, the, the great hope that we offer is not our own. It is His and His alone. Only He has the power to offer, to secure, and to guarantee it. And thus, if we are to do a proper job of telling the world about the one true God, about his Son Jesus and his Holy Spirit, then we must look with our unveiled faces to God's unveiled face for the strength and the love and the grace to do it. And if we look to him in this way, then we will also reflect him. And this is the sense in which I believe both those translations can be true at the same time. When we see God's glory, we will be God's glory. The text speaks of beholding or reflecting God in a mirror. Now a mirror always shows exactly what is put in front of it. If there's a wart on the nose of the person facing it, well, there will be a wart in the mirror. But if there is perfection on one side, then there will be perfection on the other. Guess which one we should want and guess where we will find it? Now, there's something I'm always a little uncomfortable about when I'm listening to a sermon. Because often the preacher will chuck out these little phrases that are actually attached to nothing. Like I could just chuck this out. Look to God and carry on with my sermon. Okay, God, okay Dave, well, how do I look to God? The question is, where, when? Is there a, a secret phrase? Lord, I just want to. Must I fast? Do I have enough faith to do this? Well, these are all the questions of a good, keen man. So practically, in real life, how do I do looking to God? How? Well, I'd really like to believe that nearly everybody here can figure that out for themselves. In fact, I believe we can do this right now and here. So, any suggestions? I'm actually asking for you to speak up and for some audience participation. How do we do this? How do we look to God? Read your word. Pray. Yes. What else? Listen. Listen. Very good. I hadn't written that down, so good on you. <laughs> when we read God's word, what's something else we can do with that? Meditate. Yes, we can meditate. 
And after we have meditated on God's word, what do we do? We do it. Yes, we action it. So, there you do. There you go. It's true. We do know how to practically see God. There's nothing new or revolutionary here, is there? But it probably also comes along with a bit of an uncomfortable feeling for most of us that we don't do enough of these things and we don't do them often enough. And I promise you, I am not excusing myself here either because I stand absolutely guilty too. Well, in the same way we know what to do, we also know what we ought to do. So, get on with it. Now, if not sooner. So far I've been talking mostly about the effect of seeing God in terms of how it empowers us to proclaim the gospel. But there is another facet to it, a very, very personal one. And although I'm going to squeeze it in right at the end of my sermon, and I'm not going to talk about it for a long time, I really don't want anybody to misunderstand its importance. Because it really is right up there in so many ways. It's the very last part of verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we take out the middle bit there. What does it say? It says, we all are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In my introduction today, I spoke about the power of entropy, how everything in the universe is slowly breaking down and wearing out, except one thing. Just one thing alone keeps getting better and better and better. And it turns out there are lots of them here today. You, you Christians, as we play our own part of peering into the negentropic mirror of God's word, his holy Bible, and living out what we find there with all of our might, the Holy Spirit who lives within us does his work. He really, really does. Between the two of us, we are being made more and more like Jesus, transformed, as it says here, from glory to glory. And hopefully, given the amount of time that we've spent talking about it from this very pulpit, you will recognize that this is the process that's given the theological name of sanctification. And there's clearly a whole sermon on that, but I didn't want to go with a topical sermon on that today. I want everybody to leave here today knowing that even when we feel so bad because we are confronted by the truth of our sin, as we were last week, there is no cause to falter or give up. There is no cause only because of Jesus who paid for our sins with his body and blood. And consequently in him, we really are a new person, a completely new person, a person who can both see and be seen. But more so, a person who is getting better, maybe fast, Maybe slow, but there is always progress of some kind, even when we ourselves cannot tell that is happening. It's true that we will never achieve perfection in this 
lifetime. But when we die, we will then be absolutely perfect. And we will know all the amazing work that God has done for us while we lived in Him. We all are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God is constantly at work in us. His purposes to pursue. We should help Him. So go and peer into that mirror and then see and be seen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, every morning and every evening in the bathroom we look in the mirror. But too often we do not look in your mirror. We ought to spend so much time there, Lord. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit we would be prompted to do just that. Not to admire ourselves, but to admire and revere you to see your glory and then to take that glory and show it to those around so that they too may want that mirror. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.